Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Uh, the reading will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 15 through 23. The text will be on the screen as I read. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I preach a reward. If not voluntarily, I, simply dis I, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in the preaching of the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not to make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I, become, I became like one, like one not having the law, though I am not, not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To speak to the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning, church. If you're visiting today, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, kids through second grade, you guys are dismissed uh, for Children's Church. And a reminder, after Children's Church, uh, the uh, kids will go down to the fellowship hall to practice seeing some music uh, that they'll be doing for Palm Sunday. Reminder to parents, uh, then, that you uh, don't have to pick up your kids um, right after or before you take communion like you typically do. We're doing a sermon series again on 1 Corinthians, and one of the things that was a struggle for me in preparing this message, and preparing the series rather, was trying to figure out how to get 1 Corinthians 15 to land on Easter. If you're not familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, it's about the resurrection. It had been really convenient for it to land on Easter, but no matter what, if I was going to do 1 Corinthians in order, it wasn't going to happen. Uh, so. I came up with a different solution, and I don't know if this is legal or sinful or whatever. If I'm out of bounds on doing something like this, you can talk to the elders about it and get me removed, but that, what I'm thinking is to now intentionally go out of order in 1 Corinthians, because in the next couple Sundays, we're wrapping up another section, and really how Paul is writing this letter right now is there's different topics that he's addressing, and then between different sections, he switches to different topics. So we're going to be able to wrap up the topic he's on right now, next Sunday, uh, by wrapping up chapter 10. But then instead of going to chapter 11, where he picks up another topic, we're going to fast forward ahead to chapter 15, because if you're following along, that would be on Easter Sunday. And we're going to do all of chapter 15 in three Sundays. Uh, if you're not familiar with church liturgy, there's, there's more than one day for the season of Easter. Uh, so we'll be uh, right in the season of Easter going through 1 Corinthians 15. But then when we're done with that chapter, we are going to rewind and go back to chapter 11 and finish up that section. 
Uh, so we'll see how this goes. I, I really, I honestly did struggle with this because I've never done this before. And typically with how biblical books are written, you want to go in order because of the context and it matters. But I think 1 Corinthians is such a unique book that uh, the way that he lays out these different topics that he's encountering and, and, and talking about, I think we will be able to do this um, okay. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, and I, I don't think I'm in sin. Uh, we'll see what happens. All right, let's go ahead and pray, and we're going to dive into chapter uh, 9 of 1 Corinthians. Let's pray. Lord God, I am always grateful that you gather people in this place, that you gather folks to pause and watch the live stream in their living rooms because they want to hear the gospel again. They want to hear your word. They want to sing of your gospel, pray for the advancement of the gospel throughout the city, and hear your words preached because we know your words are powerful. Your words is what spoke creation into existence. And Lord, your word has the power to change us right now and to meet us where we're at. So Lord, we pray that would happen now for the glory and fame of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. A question I often get from my extended family is, how can you stand living in the city? If you're not familiar with my story, I know many of you know this, but I come from a rural background. I grew up in southern Minnesota, the farmlands of southern Minnesota, mainly in small towns, graduating class of 50. The biggest city of ours was about 15,000 people. That was the megapolis of Albert Lee. That was really, really close to us. And so often, uh, my family just thinks it's so odd that I... I grew up there, and that's, that's God's country to them, and it's, it's the promised land, and now I'm here in this pagan wasteland. What, what's the deal? You know, my brothers call me a city. They don't get how I sold out on my rural roots. And one of the answers I often give, I've often said that when I was little, I would imagine uh, my, my family farm that I grew up in, that I was in a city, and that the, the silos on that farm were skyscrapers. And so even from an early age, I always had a draw to the city, and some of the things that drew me here is the history. I love the old history that the first, some of the first settlements in the state were here, the old buildings and, 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 and all that. I just love that. I don't like taking care of an old building, but I love the looks of an old building uh, and the history of an old building. I love the culture of the city, the politics that, that happened here and are debated and the theater and the music and mass transit and restaurants. love that stuff. I love, I love the people. Uh, one of the ways that I think about it as a person that came from a small town is that a city is like a bunch of small towns all piled on top of each other, and they just happen to have one mayor. I love all that. But on the other hand, and this is something I was thinking about this week, being from a rural background didn't mean that I came here and there was nothing intimidating about the city, that there was nothing hard about the city. Quite the opposite, especially early on. I was going from a quiet place with a very slow pace and going now to a place with a lot of people, a lot of traffic, and a lot of noise. Even to this day, I don't like traffic. That's why I like actually living right in the city. I don't like driving. If it's more than five minutes, I get fussy and I throw a tantrum. I don't like that. For me, I just, I even going to Target and Midway just feels like such an ambitious endeavor that I'm like going on the Lord of the Rings journey or something like that, right? It's just like, it's, it's all the way over there, right? Uh, so there's still some of that uh, with me. And even moving here, I know a lot of people in this congregation re relate to this. This is not your city. You didn't grow up here. 
And St. Paul specifically in Minneapolis to a certain degree has a lot of generations of families that are here and it's sometimes really hard to break into community because of that. So if you come from a different state, a different city and you move here, it feels very difficult to penetrate uh, community here and I felt that, uh, especially when we first moved here. And even specifically the challenge of moving here, I grew up in southern Minnesota, spent some time in Chicago, then moved to St. Paul and I moved here bivocationally. I wasn't, I wasn't a full-time pastor, worked at a coffee house. And then uh, beyond that, I was a church planter, so I literally had no congregation, right? I was a, I was a barista at a coffee house, and it, my other job didn't exist yet, right? That's, that's what, I was, what I was up to. And I remember having these conversations with coworkers and neighbors when I first moved here, and they could wrap their mind around, yeah, yeah, I get that you make coffee for people. That makes sense but you're a church planter. What is that? I've had all this training on what church planting is and how to do it, but how do you explain it to somebody that's never been to a class on church planting? And, and, and in many situations, like I was having these conversations with folks that did not go to church. So how do you explain church planting to them? How do you explain this crazy idea to move here with, with essentially not having a job in existence yet? And I had this specific conversation. I had it once, but I'm thinking one that I had it of the coffee house I worked at, and I was talking to somebody and trying to explain this. And he's, he's just trying to wrap his mind around this. Wait, you went to school to be a pastor, and now you're working at a coffee house to pastor a church that doesn't exist. Like, explain that to me. That doesn't make sense. Like, what are you doing? This sounds crazy. Uh, and, and I said, and I asked him, uh, well, do you have a pastor? He said, no, I don't go to church. I don't have a pastor. And then my response was, well, then you're my congregation. That's the point. And I was trying to explain church planting to somebody that doesn't go to church, and that was the best I could come up with right there, is that it doesn't come into existence because this church is going to be for folks that go here, uh, that live in the city, that don't have a place to explore the Christian faith, and we're creating a place for that. It's going to be a place for people that don't have pastors, and it also is going to be a place for folks like me that are moving here, and you kind of feel like a fish out of water because this isn't the city that you grew up in. You moved here for work or for education or whatever, and that's exactly what Trinity became over the years. And I was thinking about this story and these, these situations when reading the text today because the text is a lot about... Um, giving up certain things that you're comfortable with in order to reach many people with the gospel. And often when you think about maybe moving to a place or starting a church or something like that, it's often talked about uh, in ways like this is what you love about the city. And I do love the city, and I love living in the city, but that doesn't mean that the city is easy, that it's, that it's, that it's something that doesn't require sacrifice, that church planning or even being part of a ch church in the city isn't something that, that is super, super easy. Sometimes it's very, very, very difficult, and it requires a lot of sacrifice. And Paul is going to put that into perspective for us in chapter 9 and give us a biblical framework for what we're up to, whether it's here and you're trying to reach the city with the gospel of Jesus Christ, or if you were trying to do that in a small town, rural background, suburban background. They each have unique benefits and challenges that the gospel can address. Before I start reading chapter 9, a little review of where we're at in this section, the, the topic Paul is taking up is a letter he got from this church on a hot debate that was happening about whether or not it was okay to eat meat 
or eat animal meat that uh, these animals were sacrificed to idols at the temple. And one group of Christians said, hey, it's okay to eat it. Uh, we're not, these gods, they're not real. There's only one God and it's just meat. What's the big deal? But then there are other newer Christians that came from these pagan temples and associate a lot of their old uh, uh, existence apart from Christ with those experiences and the, and the worship there, and they just couldn't bring themselves to go back there, and they were considered these weak Christians, and the strong Christians were like, well, they just need to grow up and mature and realize it's not that big a deal, and the weak ones are like, well, we're not there yet, and Paul's addressing this debate, and effectively he says, in principle, he agrees with the Christians that are saying, yes, there's only one God, these idols don't have any power, and it's just meat. However, your brothers and sisters in Christ are not there yet. And you're causing them to sin against their, their conscience to, to insist that they go there to be able to be a strong Christian. And so he says to the strong Christians, you need to give this up. You need to live a life of sacrifice. You might be right in principle, but in practice you're unloving and you're sinning against Christ and you're sinning against your brothers and sisters in Christ because you won't surrender this right and this freedom that yes, you can do this, but maybe not here, not now, because it's destroying the peace and the unity of the church, and it's also uh, causing some doubt onto the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the section we're in right now. And then Paul says this in verses 1 through 6. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or it is only I and Barnabas who have who lack the right to not work for a living. So Paul now is launching into this discourse again about rights and freedoms, and it's all associated with getting paid to do ministry. And you first read this, and how is this connected? On the one hand, it certainly serves as an example, and he's going to use this as a case study of what it means to give up rights uh, for the sake of the gospel. He already applied it to this situation of, of this temple meet and that debate, and now he's kind of given another example on what this looks like. But it's interesting, you always have to ask, like, why did Paul choose this example? And part of it seems personal, and if you're reading that, you're right. Part of it is personal, because most likely what's happening in this congregation is that the, the, the Christians that were going to the temple, that considered themselves strong, that considered themselves influential, had doubts about Paul being a good apostle, and part of their doubts came from him eating with these weak Christians that can't bring themselves to the temple. Uh, and, and another one is that he didn't take pay for the gospel. And they're probably comparing them to some orators and some philosophers during that time, but that when you were a good public speaker or where you made a living on, on the philosophy that you would teach, you, were, you would be paid for that. You would be paid for that service. And they're probably pay, comparing Paul as a pastor to these in, uh, more secular examples and saying, hey, these people of influence, they get paid for what they do, but you denied it. That makes you weak too. That makes you, maybe maybe you're not a true apostle. Maybe we can't trust your authority and your leadership. But Paul says that he's free to do as he chooses. 
He reasserts his credentials as an apostle. He says that he has seen with his own eyes the resurrected Christ and that the Lord had called him to preach the gospel and to start new Christian communities, to start churches. And he reminds him that the existence of this church in Corinth is a testimony to my calling. You exist because the power of the gospel was at work in me to develop this church and to start this church. No other church leader did it, in other words. It was Paul, and it was God using Paul for that endeavor. And then he makes it clear that apostles and church leaders have the right to make a living off of the ministry. He points to Peter, he calls him Cephas, who makes a living off of ministry, and even some apostles uh, have uh, their travel expenses covered for their wives who accompany them. And his questions in this opening are driving home the point that all apostles and all church leaders do indeed have a right to make a living off their ministry. And he goes on to give all these examples. Look at verses 7 through 12. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this is written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we do not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's given all these examples. Soldiers, they don't cover their own expenses. If you own a vineyard, then you can eat the grapes. If you tend a flock, you can drink their milk. You put in the work, and then you can benefit from that work. You have a right to the product that your work is producing. That's what he's given example after example of. It's, it's similar to, have you ever, ever um, cooked for your family or cooked for your household, and the reason you did it was because you're hungry? And what I mean by that is this, because if you get to cook, you don't have to wait till it's done. You can eat along the way, right? You get to enjoy the fruit of your labor while you're cooking. Am I the only one that's done this before? I get really hungry. I'm like, no, 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 I'll prepare the meal as I'm eating half of it along the way, right? Uh, this is my vineyard, and I get to enjoy the produce from that vineyard. That's the point that he's making. And he backs it up even by quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25.4. Don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. And it's the same principle from God's law. And he's saying if it exists for the benefit of animals, obviously it's, it's written for much more than that. It's a principle that plays out in the marketplace and in ministry. It not only applies to issues of justice in the marketplace of fair wages, but also applies to the work of ministry. If a minister is sowing spiritual seeds of the gospel, Paul says, then the law of God says that they should benefit from that through material support. He'll even go on to give some more examples. I won't read verses 13 through 14, but he gives an example of the priest being able to eat uh, 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 the temple bread. And then he even goes to the ultimate examples. He says that Jesus even commands this point, likely a reference to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, verse 10, when the Lord says that the worker is worth his keep. So this argument right now is probably something that's not 
hugely controversial for most congregations and most people that understand ministries or nonprofits, right? Most people would say, yes, like we want folks that can benefit the common good of our neighborhoods, that can benefit the advancement of the gospel. We want them to be able to do that full time. And so Paul is presenting the biblical case for that, and, and, and he is, 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 is trying to give the principles behind it. But then he says, and this is the term that's so curious, he says in verse 12 and 15 that this is his right, but he refuses it. He has a right to get paid to do his ministry, to do the work of the gospel, but he refuses to get paid even if his congregation and the people he's leading for Christ want him to uh, make use of their generosity. And we know that Paul actually did work as a tent maker, and that's how he provided for himself while he was doing this ministry, even though his congregation wanted him to get paid through his ministry. He, they wanted the congregation to fund it. Why is that? Why did he do that? Why did he refuse this right? Why did he turn it down? He explains it more in verses 15 through 18. But I have not used any of these rights. And I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. What's the boast? Verse 16. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. So Paul says he doesn't take the money because he would rather die than deprive himself from boasting. And boasting about what? And he explains, he says if he took this funding, if he was funded in this manner, then he couldn't claim that he works voluntarily for the gospel, that he's doing this from his free choice. He's, he's saying that it doesn't matter if I get paid or I don't get paid, I am going to preach this gospel. For him, the gospel is just burning in his bones regardless of if he could make a living off of it or not. He's going to preach the gospel no matter what. And he is going to do that in any context that he is called to. Now, elsewhere, Paul does say that he takes support for the gospel. So he's not doing it here, but we know from other letters that he wrote that in some situations he did take the support, but not here. And it raises the question, why not? And yet we get that it's burning in your bones, but I'm sure it was in these other settings too. So why aren't you taking payment for your ministry and, and generosity for your ministry in this situation. And it's probably the same reason why these Corinthians are struggling with recognizing Paul as an apostle in the first place, and why they struggle with it because he is not accepting their generosity. Some Corinthian Christians are all about worldly wisdom. We've, we've been preaching them on this, that they're really, they're all about worldly wisdom, they're all about seeking status in certain social situations, and they want the Christian faith to be a part of increasing that status rather than lowering it. But Paul does not want to play that game. Instead, he preaches a message that the world finds foolish, and he doesn't make a living off of this message like the local philosophers do because he associates with the weak. So in this context especially, he wanted his ministry to be free from financial support because in a sense it becomes this paradigm of the free grace in the gospel. 
It's a message that challenges the strong and associates with the weak. And Paul needed to not only say that with his voice, but to live it with his life. So in short, what he's doing is something called contextualization. He's contextualizing the gospel of Jesus Christ to this culture of Corinth. And that's what he's about to get to in chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. But before I read that, because I think he offers some really amazing and good principles for the here and now, is what do I mean by contextualization? Let's, let's get into that a little bit. Uh, and it's simply a word that says to place something in a different context. Everybody contextualizes. As soon as you choose to speak a language, you know, this is an English-speaking service, you have contextualized, you have already used language to, to, to talk about, in this case, the gospel in a way that English, uh, uh, the English language can understand. You're always contextualizing whether you realize it or not. Here's another example of contextualization and how even depending on your context, something can mean uh, different things. Think about, again, this comes from my rural and now urban uh, experience, think about Carhartt. I'm not the only person that's made this observation, but Carhartt is in nowadays. Hipsters love Carhartt. There's a big Carhartt store at Mall of America, and you see people with Carhartt hats, Carhartt jackets all around here. When I came from my southern Minnesota roots, Carhartt was a very different vibe than it is in the city. Carhartt was different. In the city is about being a hipster, in the rural setting, if you wore Carhartt, it just means that you work with your hands. Now, I, I have this experience, actually, when I first moved here, I had a Carhartt jacket. And people would be like, well, that's all the style, that's kind of hick or whatever, like, why are you wearing that? And I eventually got rid of it. Now I bought a new one, right? Because it's, it's in style. But what's funny is if I wear it back home, like my, my, my network, my friendships, my brothers back home, they're just like, why are you wearing that stupid Carhartt? It's not even real. There's not even any stains or barbed wire tears on it. Like, this is, this is fake Carhartt, right? <laughs> they're very skeptical of it. So it means different things, right? In rural setting, it's like a working person's attire, and here is what the hipsters are really getting into. That's contextualization. You realize that it means different things in different contexts, that you're always doing contextualization. Concerning Christian ministry in the scripture, uh, Pastor Timothy Keller defines contextualization in Christian ministry as this, quote, that it's giving people the Bible's answers, which they may not all want to hear, to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking, in language and forms they can comprehend, and through appeals and arguments with force they can feel, even if they reject them, end quote. That's what contextualization is in Christian ministry. And this church has been, been all in on this idea. We've, we're highly influenced by the person I just quoted. He wrote a book called Center Church that a lot of our elders and deaconesses read in order to prepare them to, to do ministry in this setting in the way that we feel called uh, to be doing ministry. One person went through the training they called Center Church and this kind of ministry approach, uh, the Rosetta Stone of Trinity City Church. And over the years, it's been fascinating because when you try to really reach your, your, your city with the gospel by not selling out on the gospel, but by trying to show the relevance of the gospel, you'll get some criticism from a couple different sides. Over the years, uh, I, I've heard it both ways. On the one hand, I've heard and we've heard that you can't contextualize a traditional Christian doctrine. You can't do it. 
like this, this, this doctrine that's 2,000 years old and that people believe, like it's, it's, it's just outdated and it's offensive. And so if you're going to reach this city, the way that you do it is not trying to contextualize the gospel, but you've got to change it. Because there's, there's stuff in there that's just archaic and offensive and out of date, and you have to change it. Because this is a view of, of doing gospel ministry that's concerned that Christianity is being held captive by an irrelevant and ancient culture. But on the other hand, you could also hear somebody that's critical from the other side. They're saying, stop trying to accommodate the city with this gospel. Just preach the Bible. Don't worry about tickling people's ears. What are you trying to accomplish anyways? Winning people to the gospel or simply winning approval from the culture? And this type of criticism, this view, is worried about synchronizing the gospel and changing the gospel in order to reach people. So what's the balance? And you see it in these verses. Look at verses 19 through 23. This is how Paul addresses that dynamic. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those who don't have the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings." Paul says he's under no obligation to anyone other than Jesus Christ. He often refers to himself as a slave of Christ. And here he's saying that that identity he has is in service to Christ and the gospel, where he's adapting his approach and behavior for the sake of reaching different people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says if I need to embrace certain Jewish laws or customs to reach Jewish people, then he's going to do that. If he needs to not embrace Jewish customs and laws in order to reach Gentiles, then he's going to do that. Paul simply wants to contextualize the gospel depending on who his audience is. And, and he wants to do what needs to be done in order to reach as many people as possible. He has become all things to all people so that by all means he might save some. But does this mean that Paul just blows where the cultural winds blow him? No. Notice also that he's also willing not to change some of his behavior and some of his approaches depending on the context because he doesn't want to change the core of who he is as a Christian who is under Christ's law. It's surprising in this text, for example, that Paul, who is a Jewish Christian, he's a Jewish person who converted to Christianity, so he's still ethnically a Jew, that he says in this verse that he will become like a Jew in order to reach them with the gospel. And it's like, Paul, you're a Jewish Christian. And it's one of the ways, subtle ways that he is saying that he's indicating that his ultimate allegiance now, he, he would later say in other, other books of the Bible that he's Jewish, but he's indicating that his ultimate allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Or he says that he will reach Gentiles, becoming like them, but he doesn't want to embrace all of their ethical lifestyle in order to do that. He says, I'm not going to just be as a person that's unhinged from any law. I might not adapt Jewish customs to reach Gentile people, but I am still under Christ's law when I do ministry towards Gentiles because Christ's decrees and laws are eternal and timeless. So therefore, I'm not going to hang those up. 
So Paul does the balance this way. Paul wants to preach the gospel in a way that compels his audience to believe and to repent and to do so in a way of a language and approach that they can understand. But he's not willing to change the gospel in order to do that. He wants to show the relevance of the gospel. He doesn't need to make the gospel relevant. He already knows and assumes that it is. So he's just doing the hard work of getting to know his neighbors, getting to know his setting, and trying to figure out how do I communicate about this gospel? Because you can't change it. It's timeless. But to be able to do so in a way that enters into their hopes and aspirations and challenges their idols, calls them to repentance, and so on. And that's the type of ministry that we are trying to cultivate here at Trinity City Church. On the one hand, we are stubbornly committed to the Christian faith as it's been preached and confessed throughout the centuries. The apostles of the Nicene Creed, when we confess those things, we believe it. All of it. Wouldn't change a thing. Keep it the way it is. Literally believe that those confessions are true in everything that they say. The two greatest commandments, to love our neighbor and love our God and the Ten Commandments and all the different areas of life and the business that it gets into our lives, we want to live that way. We want to live the Christian life in a way that God calls us to live. Our prayer is like the Lord's Prayer, where our heart for this city is that we want our city to be like it is in heaven. That's where we're at. But on the other hand, this city is our mission field. We are trying to reach and love our neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a big part of that is you've got to learn your context. You've got to learn about your city. You've got to know your neighbors and know the history and lean into this to be able to preach the gospel. And that's one of the things, if you saw in the Sunday handout, by the way, there's a practical way of doing this. One of the things I know that's a challenge right now, we're coming out of this COVID fog where many of us were inside for a long period of time, and you're kind of coming out of that fog and doing maybe neighborhood engagement type of stuff feels like an awkward junior high dance. You're like, I don't know how to do this. I kind of forgot, like, what am I going to do? So we're launching this, this, um, this vision, this campaign at Trinity called Loving Your Neighborhood, and we're going to give you monthly tips on how to re-engage with your city. And the first one you can see here is to learn about your context, learn about your stomping grounds, and it gives you all this practical guidance. If you want more details on how to do that, if you go to Trinity's journal uh, on, our, on our website, our online journal, it'll, it'll unpack more of those ideas gives you links on how to do that because one of the things again if you're going to reach your city with the gospel you don't change it but you have to do stuff like this you have to know your context and know about your neighbors and and get involved in your mission field otherwise you're gonna you're gonna sound like you're from a different era or a different time because you're not able to to contextualize the gospel for your neighbors the other thing that you can keep an eye on that will be coming in the, the coming months is a neighborhood ministry training that we want to offer uh, and we'll have more details about that a little bit later but some practical help as we are kind of re-engaging urban and city life on the other side of the pandemic now this is where paul starts to go he assumes that contextualization isn't an easy thing and you're not motivated to do it to win approval in fact, if you're really good at contextualize the gospel, 
it's not mainly about just doing the things you want to do or to present the gospel how you want to present it. It's the hard, enduring work of really embodying life in a city and white-knuckling the gospel of Jesus Christ in the process, and that requires a lot of sacrificing of your own preference. You might have certain ways that you want to do gospel ministry, but if you're really in your heart, you want to love your neighbor and reach your neighbor, you're going to have to give those things up in order to reach your neighbor and your city with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to really become a minister to this city so that you view this city, that this isn't just a gospel for the people in here, but we really are a church for everybody out here, too, to explore the ways and calling of Jesus Christ. And to really do that takes endurance. It takes hard work. It takes sacrifice. And that's what Paul ends with in verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So in Corinth, there was probably this local Olympic kind of athletic games that were going on. And so here's Paul doing what he's preaching. He's contextualizing the gospel using a local imagery to drive home his point. He's like, you know these local games, right? There's, there's boxing, there's running, and they're all trying to compete to win the prize. And it's fascinating that the prize that they're trying to get is this wreath that they would have uh, that's made out of withered celery, essentially. So that's why, that's why he has this imagery. is like these people are disciplined and working so hard. And what are they trying to get? This, this, this prize that's just going to die. And then he obviously is connecting it to the gospel where we too need the same self-sacrifice discipline in order to win the prize. But our prize is eternal. Our prize is forever. Our prize is everlasting. And I love this metaphor. This is one of the most popular metaphors in the scriptures because it talks about how if you're really going to do gospel ministry in a way that reaches your neighbors, it's going to require a lot of sacrifice, a lot of self-discipline, like an athlete who puts in all this work to get the goal and the prize. And I, I, um, I, I was thinking a lot about... Uh, the story of uh, Suni Lee when I was thinking about this imagery. And, 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 and if, as you know, she won Olympic gold a couple of years ago. And as any St. Paul resident should feel, you should have had a lot of pride because she's from here. She's from our hood. She's one of our folks, right? And she went on and won Olympic gold. And so I did like a huge deep dive into her story and just so impressed by everything she had overcome in order to get to that one moment. You read and, and you, you learn about her dad, John, and she noted, he noticed at a young age that Suni had a lot of energy and this fearless ability to do flips without any concern about how it could injure her body. So he put together a balance beam for her and would watch gymnastics with her at a very young age and eventually checked her into a local gym. And that would cost the family and maybe even the community over time up to $1,000 a month for her to go through this 
program. And for her, she lived a teenage life, an elementary, junior high, teenage life, and all the responsibilities of your in school kids, you just think about all the homework and the stress and the socialization and all that stuff that you have. But then for her, on top of that, seven hours a day of Olympic training, six days a week, for years and years and years and decades and decades and decades because it wasn't just this fearlessness that gave her a natural ability to do it. To get to that level took that much sacrifice. You get home from school, seven more hours in the gym, six days a week to perfect your craft. And then she would face hardships. She needed to recover from a nasty ankle injury. She had to navigate the realities of COVID, just like every one of us did. But her biggest challenge probably was when her dad suffered a back injury that left him paralyzed. And this happened two days before the 2019 championship, gymnast, uh, championship that she was going to compete in. And the big question is like, could, could you even mentally go there and compete? And her dad calls her up and says, you gotta do this, don't worry about me. I got this. You've been, you've been training for this. Like, focus. You can do this. I'm with you. And she did compete in that uh, 2019 um, uh, uh, competition, and she went on to win silver overall and gold in the uneven bars. And as many of you know, we know her as the gold medal winner of the 2020 Olympics for the all-around competitions. But before that moment, before that prize, it required decades of sacrifice, work, and overcoming hardships to do it. And it's this type of story, it's this type of metaphor that Paul has in mind with this athletic metaphor. The Christian life isn't ultimately about self-happiness, but self-discipline for the sake of others. Our happiness and joy are found in Christ, not to fulfill our own self-fulfillment in our circumstances. As we run the race of the Christian life, Paul reminds us that the, what the real aim and the real destination and the real prize is. And what's at stake? We're not running aimlessly, he says, and we don't stop training because we don't feel like training anymore. This, this, what's at stake is the gospel and the eternal lives as people that, that reject Jesus and they need to come to worship and embrace Jesus. And that's why we do this. That's why we endure. That's why we sacrifice. That's why we do the hard work of figuring out how to love our neighbors without changing the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. We put in that hard work because this isn't an aimless pursuit, but the very power of the resurrection at work in this community to reach your neighbors so that they would worship Jesus forever and ever and ever.